Let us bow our heads for prayer, shall we? Dear Lord, thank you so much that you're an intimate God whose eyes are always upon us. And Lord, if you care so much about the little birds, how much more are we who you made in your image? Lord, please forgive us for the times that we have doubted your love and your watch care over us. We, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to never forget that you're a God that doesn't let us go even when we let you go. We thank you for ne never giving up on us even during the times when we gave up on you. And we thank you so much for bringing us here tonight that we might hear a word from on high. We come, Lord, not seeking the words of a man, but to hear your voice. And so would you please fill this room with your Holy Spirit. Remove every distraction from our mind and from this room. And I pray that the message will be, would, would just hit us, Lord, would, would, would enrich our lives, would bless us, would bring clarity when, and would dispel all confusion as we understand why there's so many different churches and how you're wanting to bring us together in unity, in spirit and in truth. So please bless us as we study. And we thank you for hearing this prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tonight, we're discussing Revelation's mysterious horsemen. And these four horsemen of the apocalypse will answer for us the question, why if there's only one God, are there so many different denominations? If you're to go to the local phone book and go to the section on churches, you'll find scores and scores and hundreds of different churches to choose from, from Assemblies of God to Zionists, Baptists and Methodists, Pentecostals and Presbyterians and Unification churches and Unitarian churches and Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Christian Reform, Calvary Chapel, Church of Christ, True Church of God, and others of non-denominational churches to choose from. And as you think about all these different options, have you ever wondered why so many options? Why so many churches? I mean, really, there's only one true God and one Bible, and yet there's so many different churches and so many different variations of the gospel that are being taught by different churches in the world today. And it's interesting that all the churches claim to teach truth. I mean, you'll never go to a church that says we only have, we only teach 50% of the truth and 50% opinions. You, you won't really find a church like that. All churches claim to teach truth, friends. But so many different and, and conflicting doctrines amongst the denominations, they all can't be right in their claim of teaching truth because truth is not relative. Truth is absolute. The Word of God is the truth, according to John 17 and verse 17. And so we need to ask the question, well, is it God's will for there to be many different churches to reach a variety of different people? Well, notice what Jesus said about that. In John 17, verse 21, Christ, one of his last prayers before he went to the cross was for the oneness of his people. John 17, 21, please write it down. Jesus said that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you so that they also may be one in us. Why? that the world may believe that you sent me. So Jesus is praying and desiring for the oneness of his church, the oneness of his people. 
He does not want us to be fragmented and divided and separated into many different denominations. He wants us to be one. And he says here that the oneness of his people will be evidence to the world so that they could believe that Christ is truly the scent of God. And I want to submit to you, friends, that the reason why there are so many unbelievers in the world today is because the Christian community is not one, but they're fragmented into many different churches, and that's the devil's devising. And so Christ wants us to be one. But how does he want us to be one? I want you to notice Jesus said in John 4, verse 23, that the oneness or the unity must be based upon two things, the Spirit and the truth. Jesus said, but the hour is coming and now is when the what kind of worshipers? Now, friends, if there are true worshipers, that, that means there also has to be false worshipers, right? And friends, if I'm going to worship God, I don't want to worship God in vain. I don't want to be a false worshiper. I want to be a true worshiper. How about you? <clears throat> and so what are the characteristics of a true worshiper? It continues, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in what two things? Spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. And so we find that a true worshiper worships God not just in spirit, not just in truth, but truth and spirit together, which implies very clearly that a false worshiper would be one that would worship God in spirit, but not in truth, or in truth, but not in spirit. But the true one would have both of these two things together. And friends, that's the basis of the unity that Christ desires amongst His people. Not just a unity in spirit, not just a unity in truth, but a unity in spirit and in truth that makes us a true worshiper. Now, listen, friends, for every truth that God has, Satan has a what? A counterfeit. And there is a true, genuine unity that God desires for His people, but there's also a counterfeit unity that is spreading across the Christian churches of the world today. It's an ecumenical unity where people are saying, let's just come together in the Spirit, but not in truth. They're saying, let's put aside all our doctrinal differences. In other words, it doesn't really matter what you believe or what, what I believe. Let's, let's put aside doctrines. What they're really saying is let's put aside what we believe truth is and let's just come together in spirit. And it sounds good, friends. It sounds nice. But here's the thing. God in His Word never calls us to compromise the truth of the Bible for the sake of unity and harmony and spirit. In fact, Jesus told us that his primary, one of His primary reasons to, for coming to the world was not to bring a sense of harmony and, and unity, but rather to bring truth. Notice in, in Matthew 10, verse 34, write it down. Jesus said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth, I am not come to send peace, but a what? A sword. In other words, the primary reason why Jesus came to the world was not to bring world peace in a general way where everyone just all gets together and is in harmony with one another. Jesus came to bring a sword, friends. And what is that sword? It is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And that's how we know what truth is. In other words, Christ came to bring truth. And when we know truth, the truth shall make us free. Can you say amen? amen. But friends, the, uh, one of the characteristics of a sword, the sword of the Lord, the Word of God, is that sometimes it brings division. Isn't that right? It separates us from the world. 
Now, the truth makes us free, therefore it does bring peace, but not a superficial peace like what people are wanting in the world today, but an inward peace, a peace between you and God. But sometimes peace between us and God, sometimes that results in disharmony, disharmony between us and someone that does not want it in their lives. And so Christ never wants us to sacrifice the Word of God, the sword, for the sake of peace, unity, and harmony. Never, friends. In fact, notice in James chapter 3, verse 17, write it down. The Bible says, but the wisdom that is from above is first, what? Pure, then it's what? And so we find that purity is more important than peace according to God's priorities. That the wisdom from above, the truth, the knowledge of God is pure first, then it's peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. So God is interested in that we understand the pure message of the wisdom from God. And then after that, it does bring peace. And so, while the Father is seeking for true worshipers, so also is the Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, notice what Jesus said in John 10, verse 16. He says that He has sheep that are scattered in many different folds. But notice, He doesn't want them to remain scattered. He wants to bring them together in unity. Jesus said in John 10, 16, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Stop right there. He is the gentle shepherd. We are the sheep of this pasture. And as individuals, when we accept Christ, we are accepting him as our shepherd, the one that leads us. Amen? Another word for shepherd is pastor. He is the true pastor of the church. And here the pastor says that he has sheep that are not of this fold. In other words, Christ has believers individuals who trust and have faith in him that are not of the fold. I'll be the first one to tell you, friends, that God has his people in every single fold, every single church, every single denomination under the sun. Amen? Because there's individuals in every church, Catholic and Protestant alike, non-denominational believers who are living up to all the light they have. And if they're sincere, living up to all the light they have, God recognizes them as his sheep. Amen? Every denomination is going to be represented in heaven. I believe that with all my heart. Why? Because God judges us only based upon the knowledge or the light we have. Can you say amen? Jesus said it like this. He said, this is the condemnation that light is coming to the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. In other words, there's no condemnation for being in darkness. What does that mean? There's no condemnation for not knowing all the truth. The condemnation comes when the light comes, but we say no thank you to the light, and we cling to the darkness of our own beliefs or our own former traditions. And so there are individuals in every single church that have some of the light, and they're sincere, and they're living up to all that light. And friends, I believe they're going to be saved in God's kingdom. But here's the thing, friends. Is it God's will for his sheep to be scattered in all the different folds, churches, and denominations? No. The rest of the verse says, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be how many? One flock and the same way there's only one true shepherd, that's Jesus Christ, one true pastor. According to his own words, 
there's only one true flock, friends. Now, there are many flocks in the world, but there's only one true flock, many different churches, many different denominations. But according to the words of Christ, there's only one that he recognizes as his. Now, he has all kinds of sheep that he recognizes as his in all the different flocks, but at the same rate, he has one. And so what he's doing is the gentle shepherd is calling his sheep from all the different flocks and folds and denominations, and he wants to bring them together in unity, in spirit, and in truth, so that there will be one. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Now, why is he doing this? Why does Christ, why is he interested in calling his sheep into one fold? Because listen, friends, not every path leads to the same destination. Not all roads lead to Rome, friends. I want you to notice Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, that there's only one road that leads to eternal life. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are, what? Many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So not every path, not every road leads to the same destination, friends. In fact, Christ in this passage makes it clear that the way of the majority is the way of destruction. It says many go down the broad and easy path, but it's that narrow gate, that narrow road that few find, that's the one that leads to eternal life. And friends, why is it that only few find it? Here's the reason, friends, is because very few people really want to know truth. Most people just want to hear something that makes them feel good in their sins. Very few people want truth. Majority of people want a convenient religion that meets their own needs. And, and unfortunately, this is what, happened, what has happened in Christianity today. Christianity has become a very popular religion. It has become a very easy, feel-good, nice religion. And many people are going to church not so much to learn the truth, but to get their praise on. They're going to church not to understand God's will for their lives, but rather to, 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 to encourage them and to make them feel good. But friends, notice Paul prophesied that this time would come within Christianity. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 and 4, for the time will come when they will not endure what kind of doctrine? Sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they, the teachers, shall turn their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto what? Interesting, friends. Paul prophesied that within the church there will come a time when individuals, when church members won't want to hear the truth. They won't want to hear sound doctrines. They're going to ask for teachers and hire te teachers and pastors that will, that will tell them something that will scratch the itch of their carnal ears. Just tell me what I want to hear, preacher. Just make me feel good. Let, help me to know how I can experience my best life now. And friends, that's tragic. The Bible says that they'll turn their ears away from the truth and shall turn them into fables. Let me tell you this, friends. Uh, if, if something is popular in Christianity today, it's probably not right. Because what is right is not always popular. And what is popular is not always right. And unfortunately today, churches are looking more and more like social clubs rather than sanctuaries of truth. Theatrics are taking the place of the proclamation of the Word of God. 
And emotionalism is taking the place of the deep conviction of heart. And there's an increase of quantity with these megachurches and gigachurches where entire stadiums are packed, but there's a decrease of spirituality. And when you hear what's coming from those pulpits, it's a lot of nice things. I liken it to cotton candy. You know what cotton candy is, right? Cotton candy, Christianity. What, what is cotton? You see, there's the bread of life, but then there's cotton candy. And cotton candy, it's nice, it's colorful, it's sweet, it's fluffy, it's flowery, but when you put it in your mouth, it melts away and gives you no spiritual sustenance, just a sugar high. And that's how many sermons are like today. Friends, we don't want cotton candy Christianity. We want the bread of life. Can you say amen? This has substance, friends. And so it's not about making people feel good, but telling people what God's will is for their lives as it's revealed through Jesus and the teachings of the Bible. Unfortunately, most people would rather believe a beautiful lie than a difficult truth. Oh, if it's beautiful, oh, yes. But a difficult truth, oh, no thanks. And that's tragic, friends. This is counterfeit Christianity. In fact, notice the apostle wrote in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5 and 7, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of what? <clears throat> now, this is not describing the world, friends. This is describing the church in the last days, Christianity. It says they would have a form of godliness, but there's no power in their lives. In other words, outwardly, they, they look godly. They look like Christians, but there's no Holy Spirit. There's no power to overcome. And it says they're ever learning, but they're not coming to the knowledge of truth, which shows that they're learning a lot of good things, but they're not learning the most important things. There are little, little substance coming from many pulpits in the world today. And that's why I'm not so, uh, I'm not so shocked when, when I meet wonderful individuals who come to the uh, seminar like this and they say, wow, Taj, I've been, a, I've been going to church all my life for 50 years, and yet I've learned more in these few weeks than my entire 50 years of going to church. I'm not as shocked. Why? Because that's how the condition of Christi Christianity would be in the last days. And I truly believe that the reason why you're here tonight is because you're searching for something more. Amen. You're not, you're not being fed. You're not, the, the, the cotton candy stuff, it, it, it tastes nice for the moment, but it's not giving you spiritual energy to live in this chaotic world. And so God brought you here because you're wanting something more, something deeper. And that's all we want to do, friends. We want to share what the Bible teaches. That's all that matters. Not what a man says or what a church thinks, but the word of the living God. This is the bread of life. And people are saying, well, we have the spirit, therefore we don't really need the truth. Well, here's the thing, friends. You can't separate them. Biblically, you can't because notice, who is the one that leads us to truth? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will always lead us to truth. In John 16, 13, when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into some truth. Most truth. All truth, friends. In other words, God, if, we're truly if we truly have the Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit will never call us to, to, to disregard truth for the sake of getting along with all the churches of the world today. The true Holy Spirit will lead us to a deeper understanding of truth, not just some of it, but all of it. In other words, we're ever going to be learning and progressing, and therefore, listen, friends, therefore, if a church stops teaching the truth, 
the Holy Spirit leads us into a further understanding of truth, it's time for us to follow the Holy Spirit and not a church. Amen? Our loyalty is to God, not to a, an earthly institution. And so, I want us to notice as we continue tonight, many churches, or it's, 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 it's clear that not all roads, not all gates, not all churches and denominations lead to heaven, friends. Many churches of the world today have been corrupted by compromising counterfeits that have brought spiritual confusion in the world today. And so tonight we're going to find out what was it that caused the corrupting and the fragmenting of many churches in the world today? Where and why are there so many different denominations? Well, this, the answer is found in the book of Revelation, friends. In the four horsemen of the apocalypse, we find a compelling answer as to where the different churches came from and how it was corrupted. And so please turn your Bible with me to the book of Revelation chapter 6. <clears throat> Revelation, what chapter? These four horsemen that John the Revelator sees in prophetic vision reveals the future of, uh, of Christianity from the first century to the 21st. How the Christian church began as one unified in spirit and truth, having a pure faith, but then would become corrupted and fragmented into thousands of different churches. And after we go through the four horsemen, we're going to see that in these last days, God is the gentle shepherd, Jesus, the pastor, is gathering all of his sheep, his believers, from all the different folds, the churches, into one church here in these last days. You see, these four horsemen in Revelation 6 actually represent God's church in four different periods in history. How do we know? Because the Bible tells us so. Notice what it says in, in the book of Isaiah chapter 63, verse 13 and 14. Whenever you find the word horse in the Bible, it's, always, it's almost always referring to a literal animal, a literal horse. But whenever we find a horse used as a symbol in the Bible, specifically in prophecy, it represents the people of God or the church. Notice what it says, Isaiah 63, 13, and 14. It says that led them through the deep as an horse in the wilderness, that they should not stumble. So didst thou lead who? Thy people to make thyself a glorious name. In this passage, we find uh, God likening an individual leading a horse through the wilderness as himself who led his people through the wilderness. So again, the horse would be a symbol of the people of God, led by God himself. In fact, notice another one. In Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 3, the Bible says that the Lord of hosts has visited his flock. His what? His flock. And, wh and remember what the flock is. That's, that's his church. He's the shepherd and, and the flock is the church and has visited the house of Judah and hath made them as his goodly what? Horse in battle. So the flock, the house of Judah, is likened unto a horse that God leads. Now remember, we learned on, the, on another, another, another night that, that the house of Judah in the Old Testament represents the literal nation. But in the New Testament, it represents the spiritual nation. It represents the people of God. And so now as we lay that foundation, as we go to Revelation 6, we find four horsemen galloping across the prophetic scene, representing God's church, God's people, in four different time periods, in four different conditions. 
Notice with me as we go through this together. We're in Revelation chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. If you're there and if you're ready to study, would you please say amen? Amen. The Bible says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, and one of the beasts saying, Come and see. Verse 2. And I saw, and behold, a what color horse? A white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth, conquering and to conquer. Here we find this horse is white, which is the color of purity and the color of truth. It, on this horse is a rider wearing a crown on his head with a bow in his hand. Who wears crowns, friends? Kings. And this king has a bow. And he goes forth conquering and to conquer. This represents God's people, God's church, during the days of the early apostles. When the truth of God's word and the gospel was spreading like wildfire throughout the world, and the kingdom of Christ was conquering with the arrows of truth, where people were hit and pierced with Holy Spirit conviction. It represents the time when the Christian faith was a pure faith. It was the, during the days of the early apostolic church. And the reason why their faith was pure is because they received their doctrines directly from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. It was not tainted with tradition and human speculation. In fact, when you read Revelation chapter 12, you'll find parallel imagery. Revelation 12, uh, we're going to study this in detail tomorrow evening. Don't you miss it, friends. In Revelation 12, it describes a woman that is clothed in pure white garments. And that woman also represents the early apostolic church the beloved bride of Christ. She is pure because her message is true. She received it directly from the lips of Christ. And we'll see that more clearly tomorrow night. But friends, this white horse time period represents the time when the Christian faith was a pure, powerful, and conquering faith. When truth was triumphing as Christ through the, and the Holy Spirit through the apostles went out conquering souls from the kingdom of darkness and conquering them for the kingdom of light. In fact, notice the description of the early apostolic church. In Acts 5 verse 14, the Bible says, the believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. You remember on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls were baptized in a day. The church was triumphing, conquering, and to conquer. Individuals were brought and rescued from, from darkness and, and brought into the light. And this was a time when the Christian faith as I mentioned, was pure. And the reason why it was pure is because notice the attitude of the apostles. In Acts 5.29, they said, we ought to obey who? God rather than men. And friends, whenever a church or an individual makes up their mind that God comes first before man, you can believe that the Lord is going to bless that church or individual with Holy Spirit power to spread that message to the four corners of the earth. And that's what was happening during the white horse time period. The message was triumphing. It was during the days of the early apostolic church from around 31 A.D. when Christ resurrected to about 100 A.D. Satan had to do something to stop them, and he had to do it fast. And so what happened was this. He tried to persecute the New Testament church, and that's where the next horse comes upon the scene. Notice what it says in verse 4. Revelation 6, verse 4. It says, And there went out another horse. That was what color? What color? Red. That's the color of blood. 
And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Here we find the horse from being white in apostolic purity. Now the next one is, is red, which is the color of blood. And friends, the color of purity. Now the color of bloody persecution. This is what happened, friends. Satan has saw the church triumphing, so he tried to stop them by beginning a fierce era of persecution. In fact, notice what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. The Bible says, whoever lives godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer what? And so when you live godly in Christ Jesus, you will excite the wrath of the dragon. And he's going to come after you, and he's going to persecute you. He's going to do his best to destroy your life. And that's what happened, friends. The church was living godly in Christ Jesus, the white horse time period. They were living godly. And so now Satan tried to persecute them, destroying them by persecution. The gospel message of peace was being trampled upon. You see, this red horse represents the time when the Christian faith was a blood-stained and persecuted faith. When you study history, you'll notice that Satan influenced the pagan Romans. The who? <clears throat> the pagan Romans to persecute that early church. And, and friends, many, all of the apostles except for one died a martyr's death at the hands of the pagan Roman Empire. Paul, was Paul had his head chopped off by Emperor Nero. The apostle Peter was crucified upside down because he felt himself unworthy to be crucified like his Lord was. And those early Christians were thrown into the Colosseum there at Rome. I was there a few years ago. It was surreal to think that in that place, the entertainment of the day was to see Christians being devoured by wild animals, burnt alive at the stake to light up the nightly games. And we also went to the Mamertine prison there at Rome. Have you ever been to the city of Rome before? We went to the Mamertine prison. If you ever get there, go, go to the Mamertine prison where you can actually see the, the prison that the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul was imprisoned before they died a martyr's death. In that little damp, dingy dungeon, it was there that the Apostle Paul wrote the letter, his last letter to Timothy, the, the book of 2 Timothy, where in that letter, if you read 2 Timothy, the last part, he's asking for Timothy, bring my coat, because Paul knew that the winter months were ahead. And that, that dungeon would be so cold. And we were there during that time period. It was so surreal. As I mentioned, Peter crucified upside down. The apostle Paul had his head chopped off by Nero. The Christians were persecuted, bloody persecution. And this lasted from around 100 to about 313 A.D. The red horse time period represents the time when the Christian faith was a persecuted faith, the persecuted church. But then notice, when you study history, you'll notice something very interesting, that Despite how much Satan was persecuting the church, he could not destroy the church by persecution. It wasn't working. And here's the reason why. Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against my church. Can you say amen? That word hell in the Greek is the word Hades, which means the grave. In other words, death and the grave could not wipe out the church of God. So they were being put to death, but the church continued to grow in leaps and bounds. And here's the reason why. I want you to notice how history describes it. Eusebius was a church historian, and notice what he described took place back then. We saw the most marvelous inspiration, a force which was truly divine, and the readiness of those who had faith in the Christ of God. Immediately when sentence had been pronounced on one group, 
another party came before the tribunal acknowledging themselves Christians and remaining how? Oh, I love that word. They were unmoved, friends. Nothing could move them and shake their faith. It says they remain unmoved before dangers and torments of all kinds. Indeed, they reason how? With joy. What? The final sentence of death. They sang hymns and offered thanksgiving to God of all until their last breath. You see, the reason why persecution was not working to destroy the church is because the more they were persecuted, the more they grew in number. Tertullian, the historian, said that the blood of the martyrs was like seed for the gospel. And the reason why is because those early Christians, they went to the stake and were burnt alive, but they were singing praises to God while being put to death. There's no fear in their countenance, but only joy and calm assurance and peace. And their pagan persecutors looked upon that, and they were amazed. They were like, what is going on here? These Christians have something that we don't have. Their God must be real. I mean, how can they be singing praises while being burnt at the stake? And they realize, many of those pagans, they realize, wow, I want what they have. Their God must be real because you see the pagans, one thing that they were afraid of was death. But when the Christians were not afraid of death, they started to desire what, uh, what the Christians had that they themselves were strangers of. And so one would die, and, and at that very moment, ten would be converted on the spot by seeing the witness of the martyrs. And so thus, even though they were put to, get, put to death, they continued to grow and grow and grow because those martyrs died with the blessed hope burning in their hearts. Death could not conquer the true church of Christ. As they demonstrated the love of Christ, even while praying for their persecutors like Jesus did, and loving on those who were putting them to death, it convicted their hearts, and thus pagans were converted by leaps and bounds. And friends, that's a good example for us. If you want to win your loved ones to the Lord Jesus, sometimes you just have to shut your mouth and start living your life. Can you say amen? And demonstrate, demonstrate the love of Christ. Demonstrate the peace that Jesus gives in the midst of trials and tribulations. And when your family members see how you are in the midst of difficulties, they're, they're going to be like, wow, there's something about you. There's something different about you. What is, what is so different about you? And then you'll have an opportunity to say, not I, but Christ lives in me. Amen. And many people will come to know Jesus as a result. You see, during this time period, death did not phase out the church, but rather persecution kept the church pure from compromise because those who joined the church were, were fully converted. I mean, they were not playing games like people do today. They want to join the church and just, and just still continue to live their lives however they want to live. No, friends, those Christians, those pagans that were converted to Christianity, they were, they were ready to die, friends. And so it kept the church pure, and the conversions were, were, were true conversions. And so Satan could not destroy the church by persecution, Therefore, he had to change his strategy. And essentially, what Satan said was this. If I can't beat them, I'll join them. If I can't beat them outwardly by persecution, then I'll join them and I'll corrupt them internally. And that's where the next horse comes upon the scene. Let's read it now. Revelation 6, verse 5 and 6. <coughs> Notice what the Bible says. <clears throat> And when he'd opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And behold, and lo, a what? A black horse. 
And he that sat on him had a, had a pair of, what, in, what is in his hand? A pair of balances or scales in his hand. And I heard the voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. See thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Here we find the horse from being white in apostolic purity, red to bloodied persecution. Now a bargaining rider in black. And if you notice, he has a pair of balances, scales in his hand. And if you calculate what he's asking for, for what he's giving in return, he's asking for way too much for too little in return. And I want you to notice what a pair, in other words, the balances are faulty. It's false balances. And notice what those balances are a symbol of in the book of Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 1. Please write it down. Proverbs 11.1 1 says that a false or deceitful balance is what? Abomination to the Lord. But a just or a fair weight is his delight. So a false balance, that's what the rider has in his hands. It represents abominations. And so this black horse time period represents the time when deception compromise brought untold abominations within the church. You see, the dark horse time period represents the, the darkness of compromise creeping within. It's when Satan infiltrated the church, bringing in a false light. It was the time that paganism walked right into the church to corrupt it from the inside out. And if you notice that there's a famine, friends, what he's asking for is too much for too little. It represents a famine of God's food a time when the church took advantage of the, uh, of the spiritual malnourishment of the people. And this, my friends, is a fit description of the beginning parts of the reign of the medieval church. And Paul prophesied about this coming corruption that would creep within. Notice what it says in the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3. It says, That day will not come unless the what? <clears throat> the falling away comes first and the man of sin be revealed. The falling away, if you look that up in the original Greek, it means the great apostasy. What does it mean? In other words, a great apostasy would take place within the church. Satan said, if I can't beat them, I'll join them and I'll corrupt them. And a great apostasy, the man of sin, the Antichrist, would creep within the church just like a wolf in sheep's clothing. In Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and 30, the Apostle Paul warned us of this time. And friends, let me ask you, what color horse time period did the Apostle Paul live in? What color horse time period? The Apostle Paul. The white horse, of course. He was a part of the early apostolic church. And notice what he says. I know this, that after my depart, departing, or after the white horse time period, we can say, Shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock? He said that after, after my departing, grievous wolves will come that, that would devour the sheep. What color horse time period does that sound like? That sounds like red, friends, persecution. The wolves coming to destroy the sheep. And then notice after that, also from where? Your own selves shall men arise, speaking what? perverse things to draw away disciples after them. That's the black horse time period. Grievous wolves in sheep's clothing would enter in and begin to speak perverse things, drawing disciples after them. So Satan changes strategy. Instead of by force, he uses flattery. Instead of by weapons, he uses words, deceitful words. And the prophet Daniel saw this time period in vision. In Daniel 8 and verse 12, it says, he cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. Truth was trampled upon. Salvation 
uh, through Christ was replaced by the requirements of man and the requirements of a false church. The teachings of God were not approved by the Word or, 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 or taken from the Word, but they were made up by church councils. And men have it a form of godliness, but no power in their lives. Now, how in the world could this happen? What, what, what was the historical setting that brought about a corruption and a compromise within Christianity? Well, friends, let me give you the, the historical background. Pagan Ro the pagan Roman Empire was the empire that was ruling all the world during that time period. And the Roman Empire, which was pagan, which was what? Paganism was the state religion of Rome. And this pagan empire was beginning to fall. Not only were barbarian tribes invading different territories of Rome, but Rome itself was a divided kingdom, divided with two religions that were basically fighting for supremacy. That is paganism and Christianity. Now, as I mentioned, paganism was the state religion, and the pagans were persecuting the Christians. But as we, we discovered, that the more they persecuted them, the more the Christians grew, and the more pagans were actually being truly converted. And so Constantine, who was a pagan himself, he saw the dilemma, and he realized that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, and that the only way he could save the Roman Empire was to unite the two religions, paganism and Christianity, together. But he saw that there would be no way the Christians would become pagans, not even by death they would become pagans. And so a Constantine did was he basically made the Roman Empire a Christian empire. So from being pagan Rome, it became papal Rome. And Constantine claimed to have a dramatic conversion to Christianity. Then he made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. But he was not truly converted, friends. This was a, a, a political move. He was a typical politician that just wanted to do things for his own gain. It was a typical political move in order to save the empire. He did not renounce paganism. He simply brought it right into the church. And many of the Christians accepted the compromise, unfortunately, because they were tired of being persecuted. Notice how history describes this infiltration of paganism into Christianity. <clears throat> history tells us that in, in the interval between the days of the apostles and the conversion of Constantine, Rites and ceremonies, of neither which Paul nor Peter ever heard, crept silently into use and then claimed the ranks of what? Divine institutions. So rites and ceremonies that Paul and Peter did not know, that, that, that is not found in the Bible, crept within the church, began to be practiced, and then were called divine institutions. Paganism walks right in. Notice another historical reference. We are told by Eusebius, a church historian, that Constantine, in order to recommend the new religion to the heathen, what new religion was he recommending to the pagans? He was recommending Christianity, right? Papal Rome, we must now become, uh, pagan Rome, we must now become papal Rome or Christian Rome. And so he was trying to get the heathens, the pagans, to become Christians. And in order to recommend Christianity to the heathen, what did he do? He transferred into it, into what? into Christianity all the outward ornaments to which they, the pagans, had been accustomed in their own religion. So to make Christianity more palatable for pagans to convert to, he brought with, into Christianity pagan ornaments that the pagans were accustomed in their own religion. 
to help make the transition a little bit smooth. And friends, the church, what they did was they lowered the standard and allowed this worldliness to come in for the sake of a larger membership. And unfortunately, many churches are making the exact same mistake today. Lowering the standards, bringing in worldliness for the sake of having a mega church or a giga church and just let's pack the house and thinking that numbers is a sign of spirituality. Well, friends, if that was the case, then Noah would be the most, one of the most unspiritual people in the Bible. Isn't that right? Because there's only eight people in his church, and all the rest were outside of the ark. Now, notice as we continue, what were some of these outward ornaments, ornaments of paganism that came into the church? Constantine's coins bore on the one side the letters of the name of Christ, and on the other the figure of the what? The sun God, as if he could not dare to relinquish the patronage of the bright luminary. You see, Constantine worshipped the sun. All good pagans worshipped the sun god. And so he brought these images of the sun into the church so that pagans would feel comfortable embracing Christianity. And friends, we still find these same ornaments in the churches today, friends. Ornaments of the sun. In fact, I want, you to know, I want to share with you a few examples. Here are some pictures I took when I was in St. Peter's Basilica there in Rome. And there's this famous statue of what people are calling St. Peter. If you notice on the top of his head is a sun disc. It was a symbol of the sun god, friends. A uniting of paganism and Christianity together. And thousands of people visit the basilica every single year and they bow down and they, and they kiss the feet of this statue that they believe is St. Peter and they pray to Peter. And friends, so much so that the toes have been worn down. Now people are sincere when they do this. They think that they're doing the right thing and, and, and we, can't, we can't judge anyone's sincerity. Can you say amen? I mean, they're sincere. God sees their hearts. But what many people don't realize is that this is not a statue of St. Peter. It's actually a statue of the pagan sun god Jupiter, renamed to Peter during the early days so that the pagans who used to worship Jupiter, now they're worshiping or they're praying to St. Peter, and it helped them embrace the Christian religion. Paganism, images of the sun crept within the church. Here's another, you see it all over the architecture and the statues and the pictures, the sun disc accentuated over and over again. Another picture of the nativity, what is emphasized is the sun, friends, the sun, the sun, sun worship and Christian worship uniting together. Oh, I took these pictures when I was in all the different churches there at Rome. The sun disc over and over again. Here's one that I took, uh, the sunbeam right behind. And here's another one, the all-seeing eye in the middle of a sunburst. Notice this one. Instead of uh, Jesus being in the middle and, 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 and Mary and Joseph, they're on the side. And what's in the middle? It's the sun, friends. Why? Because the sun god was the primary god in paganism. And it was brought into the church. And this one was very shocking. Right next to the main altar there in St. Peter's Basilica, the headquarters, there's a statue of a woman. But instead of holding baby Jesus, who is she embracing? The sun, friends. Because that was the primary god in pagan worship. And friends, do you... Do you know where the biggest sun disc in the world is? It's right there at St. Peter's Square. Right there is the biggest sundial in the world. And this pillar in the middle is called an obelisk. It's a symbol of the, sun, of the Egyptian sun god Ra. It brought into the, in, into the church in the symbols in early times. If you notice, there's a whole bunch of hieroglyphics on that pillar. 
it's a very clear indication of how paganism walked right into the church. And it was during this time that individuals begin, began to worship saints and or pray to saints. And, 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 and the saints became intercessors, setting aside the role of the Holy Spirit. They began to worship idols and crosses and pictures and angels. Well, how could, this, how could the church begin to do this? What about the second commandment that clearly says that we should not make any graven images and bow down or worship them? How could the church rationalize this practice when it's clearly a violation of the second commandment? Well, friends, it was during this age of compromise that they thought to change God's times and laws. Remember we studied that before? It was then that the church sought to change God's law. And they totally got rid of the second commandment that had to do with bowing down and worshiping idols and images. If you read the catechism, the second commandment is completely deleted. It's gone, friends, in the catechism. And in order to still have ten commandments, they split the tenth commandment into two. Commandment number nine says, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Commandment ten, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. Changing God's times and laws. Very, very shocking, but this is simply a matter of history. Also, during this age of compromise, the Black Horse time period, the pagans' day of the sun, Sunday, replaced the biblical Sabbath, which is the seventh day of the week. We call it Saturday. That's the true Sabbath. Notice what history says. History of the Eastern Church, page 184. The retention of the old pagan name of Dia Solis, that means Sunday, is in a great measure owing to the what? Union of pagan and Christian sentiment with which the first day of the week was recommended by Constantine to his subjects, pagan and Christian alike, as the venerable day of the what? So Constantine, he recommended that, that the church, that Christianity, we now keep Sunday the first day of the week. Why? Because that was the day in which the pagans worshiped the sun god. So to help paganism, Embrace Christianity, he brought in not just the idols of paganism, but also the false day of worship, Sunday, the first day of the week. And so that helped the pagans feel more comfortable. And they said, instead of worshiping the sun in the heavens, we're now worshiping the sun, Jesus Christ. But friends, this was a direct violation of the fourth commandment, which says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day. Not a seventh day, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Now, at first he just recommended it. But then in the year 321 A.D., write it down, look it up for yourself. In 321 A.D., Constantine passed the first Sunday law in order to unite the divided empire. He made Sunday worship the law of the state, and people had to worship on the pagan's day of worship. He said that, you know, we're doing this in honor of the resurrection. But there's no verse in the Bible that says such a change was to be made. <clears throat> and so here we find, friends, things got dark. It was a time when corruption gradually settled within the church. The black horse time period represents the time when the Christian faith was a corrupted, compromised faith. It lasted from around 313 to about 538 A.D. That's when the compromise gradually settled in. And if things can't get any worse, it actually gets worse, friends. We have one more horse. And notice what it says, Revelation 6 and verse 8. The Bible says, And I looked, and behold, a what color horse? a pale horse and his name that sat on him was death and hell followed with him 
And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Here we find from white in apostolic purity to red, bloodied persecution, to black as compromise and corruption crept within. Now it's pale, which is the color of decay and death. You see, pale is the color that people turn to just before they die. It's yellowish green. It's the color of sickly houseplants that don't get enough light. Isn't that right? When, you don't, when your plants in the house don't have light or water, it turns pale. It looks like it's alive, but it's pale. When you stay in the dark, physically, literally, you become pale. Friends, I, I have to tell you, growing up in Hawaii, you know, there was a certain color I was, but when I moved to the mainland, I turned pale. <laughs> we don't have as much sun here. Well, at least California is better than the East Coast. Amen. <laughs> But uh, I used to be a lot darker than I was because I was always in the sun in Hawaii. But, but when, when, when there's no light, you turn pale, friends. And that's what happened to the church during the dark ages. During the dark ages, the light was removed. Thus, the church became pale. And what does the light represent? Psalms 119, 105, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a Light into my path. And friends, during the dark ages, the light of God's word was, it, the, the church said it's illegal. You cannot read the Bible. You cannot own the Bible. And in fact, in the dark ages, if you were caught with the word of God, you would be burnt alive at the stake. Terrible, friends. And so when you take away the light, what do you have as a result? The dark ages. And when there's no light, you turn pale. It's the color of decay and death. And so this pale horse represents the time when the Christian faith was a dead and a dying faith. The light was almost extinguished, and spiritual death came as a result. Notice how history describes the church of the dark ages. Here's history again. It says, the new Christians were, who, who are the new Christians? The pagan converts, those who converted from paganism into Christianity. And so it says, the new Christians were as far as thinking and habits went, that's their beliefs and their lifestyle, as far as thinking and habits went, they were the what? The same old pagans. Their surge into the churches did not wipe out paganism. In other words, Christianity did not truly take the place of paganism. Well, what happened then? On the contrary, hordes of baptized pagans meant that paganism had what? diluted the moral energies of organized Christianity to the point of impotence. So, friends, what happened was this. Pagans were not truly getting converted, but rather it diluted the power of Christianity to the point where they became impotent. And that word impotent means you can't reproduce, and when you can't reproduce, you end up dying. It's pale, friends. It's the color of death. In fact, notice another historical quote. It says, Christianity became an established religion in the Roman Empire and took the place of paganism. Christianity, as it existed in the Dark Ages, might be termed what? Baptized paganism. That's all it was, friends. It was paganism with a Christian garment. It was paganism with a Christian name. And true Christianity had to go underground. And the organized, visible church was not truly the church of God. It was not, friends. It was paganism with a Christian name. And that's what happens. When you lower your standards and you compromise the truth in order to get more people in your church, what happens is this. 
The world is never converted to the church. Always what happens is that the church is converted to the world, friends. Whenever a church lowers their standards in order to get buddy-buddy with, with unbelievers, those unbelievers are not converted. They may start coming to church, but friends, what happens is the church gets converted and becomes like the world. And unfortunately, that's the condition of many churches of the world today. And that's the reason why people don't want to endure sound doctrines, but after their own lust, their own carnal desires, because they're not truly converted, they just want to hire pastors that will tell them good, smooth, easy, fluffy, flowery messages. Tell me it's going to be okay, and I'll put some money in the offering plate. And that's a tragedy, friends. And that's why in this seminar, it doesn't matter what a man says, just the Word of God. Amen? We don't want cotton candy. We want the bread of life. Can you say amen? <clears throat> and so what happened was this. The false religious system became head of, the head of the state. And now during the dark ages, the church used the military power of the state to enforce its doctrines upon the consciences of individuals. Church and state united, friends. And the church used the armies of the state to enforce its false teachings. And those who wanted to remain faithful to God and His pure word, they were now hunted down by the church and put to death, friends, in cruel ways. Many of them were burnt at the stake. Others had their tongues cut off because they would not stop, they wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. Some were sawn in half. Others were stomped upon and by, by wild animals, and, and was, they died in cruel and torturous ways. And during this time period, the secret, a, a secret branch of the church was created to destroy heretics. It's called the Jesuit Order, the secret society of the Catholic Church, founded by Ignatius Loyola in 1514. And friends, you have to understand that the reason why the Jesuits were created was to stamp out Protestantism, to stamp out what they called a heresy, which was really what the Bible taught, and to establish popery in the world during that time. And friends, I visited the, the, the headquarters of the Church of Jesus, the secret society of the Catholic Church, the Jesuit Church, and, and I was there, and I saw some amazing things when I was there. I'm going to show you some pictures, but let me just read you quickly from the book Great Controversy, where it describes the goals of the Jesuit order. In the book, Great Controversy, page 234, 235, it reads, describing the vows of the Jesuit priests. It said, vow to perpetual poverty and humility. It was their studied aim to do what? Secure wealth and power to be devoted to overthrow Protestantism and the reestablishment of the papal supremacy. They, that is the Jesuit order, the Jesuit priests, wore a garb of sanctity. And I want you to think about the current pope because he's the first Jesuit pope in the world. I want you to think about that as we read this. They wore a garb of sanctity, professing to have renounced the world and bearing the sacred name of Jesus, who went about what? Doing good. They, they went to do good, but for what purpose? It continues. But under this blameless exterior, the most criminal and deadly purposes were concealed. It was a fundamental principle of the order, the Jesuit order, that the end justifies the means. That, that, you know what that means? That means as long as you accomplish the goal, it doesn't matter how you get there, as long as it justifies the means. Of, the end justifies the means. It says, by this code, the end justifies the means, by this code, lying, theft, 
perjury, assassination were not only pardonable but commendable when they served the interest of the church. In other words, the purpose of the Jesuit order was to infiltrate Protestantism through lying and, and, and these types of things. Why? Because the end justified the means. The end was to overthrow Protestantism and establish popery. And however it takes, even assassination, go ahead. It's the secret society of the Catholic Church. And friends, many Jesuits would deny these intentions, but their own symbols do not lie. In that church, I took this picture. It's a picture of a woman, supposedly the church, crushing these two individuals. And that's right there in the famous statue. And friends, then there's this little supposedly angel, but more like a demon, ripping out pages from a book. Now, friends, if you look carefully at the statue, on the bindings of the books are the names Martin Luther, John Calvin, and Eurek Zwingli three famous Protestant reformers. It was a symbol of the church and the Jesuit order wanting to crush and stamp out Protestantism altogether. And that's what happened during the Dark Ages, friends. The people of God, the true Christians, faced death and torture of all kinds. And they were faced with hard temptations. They would tell them, all you have to do is bow down and, and acknowledge the supremacy of the Pope. All you have to do is recant your teachings, and you can spare yourself a cruel death. They were faced with hard temptations, but they went to death, friends. They would rather die for truth than to live a lie in peace and safety. And friends, history tells us that over 50 million Christians died in the dark ages, and their only crime was that they wanted to remain faithful to Jesus and the teachings of the Bible. How many? Over 50 million Christians. And that's what happened in the dark ages, friends. Now, they would rather die than disobey God. <laughs> and when you think about that, what kind of excuse will we give to God for not obeying Him? Oh, but Lord, I would have done it, but I would have kept the Sabbath, but I might have lost my job. But my family would have thought I was weird, or I might have lost the respect of my peers. What kind of excuse is that going to be when over 50 million Christians would rather be burnt at the stake than disobey God, friends? As we think about these martyrs, we, they inspire us with a faith and a firm stand for Jesus. Amen? Oh, we need to have the faith of the martyrs. Some people say, oh, yes, I'm ready to die for Jesus, but before we can die for Jesus, we first must live for Jesus. Amen? The black horse time period, the dead church, the pale horse, rep, oh, excuse me, the, yeah, the, the pale horse time period was around 538 to 1798. What happened next? Would the truth be trampled upon forever? It seemed like the darkness was prevailing against the light. But friends, can darkness really overcome light? No, friends. The Bible tells us that the light of truth would begin to penetrate the darkness of the dark ages as God would restore truth to his, to his people. Now, now, friends, how many of you are ready for the good news? So far, it's just been bad news. I'm, I'm sorry to tell you that, but that's just a matter of history and prophecy. It's been bad news so far. We, we trace the church from its pure organic state, white in apostolic purity, then red, bloodied in persecution, then black, compromised and corrupted, then pale, sickly, decayed and, and, and with death, 
and it's just been bad, 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 going down, 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 down to the gutter. Now we're going to trace it as it rises up out of the darkness into the light. So you ready for the good news? All right, time to get excited, friends. Here's the good news. God's truth will triumph over error. The light would penetrate the darkness. Notice what the Bible says in Proverbs 4, verse 18, but the path of the just, the path of the what? Now, what does the word just mean? It literally means righteous, or this is the right path. And furthermore, the Bible tells us that the just shall live by faith. And so the path of the just, it simply means the the right path the right path of faith, or the true faith. It says the path of the just is as the what? Shining light that shines how? More and more unto the when? The perfect day. So the Bible tells us that the true path of faith, the path of the just, is like a light that shines brighter and brighter, clearer and clearer, more and more, and it leads to the perfect day, and that's the day that we see the light in all of its clarity without any layer of darkness whatsoever. And so here's the question. How would the path of the just, the right path of faith, be restored from the dark ages? The Bible tells us in Jude and verse 1, chapter 1, verse 3, it says, exhorting you to, what is this word right here? Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. The Bible tells us that we ought to contend for the true faith. That word contend means to defend it. It means to stand up for it. It means to proclaim it to the world. And so God would raise up different individuals that would stand up against the current of popularity and they would defend the true faith of Jesus. They would protest error. That's why they're called Protestants. They were protesting error, and they were proclaiming truth. But question, how does God reveal truth? The Bible says in John chapter 16, verse 12 and 13, Jesus said, I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Friends, Jesus, there's so much he wants us to know, but I'm thankful that he does not overwhelm us. Can you say amen? He doesn't give us more than what we can handle. So he said, I have lots to say, but I'm not going to give it to you all at once because I know you can't handle it. How it? when he, the spirit of what? truth is come, he will guide you into not just some of it, not just most of it, but into all of it. And the word guide denotes that it is a process. Amen? There's a progression of truth that God's people will understand more clearly as they allow the spirit of truth to guide them. And remember, friends, what constitutes a true worshiper? One that worships God in spirit and truth. So these are true worshipers who allow the spirit of truth to guide them into all truth, but not all at once because he has so much to say. We can't bear them now. Therefore, he reveals it to us gradually, brighter and brighter clearer and clearer, more and more. Just like when the sun rises, it gradually dispels the darkness of the night so that our eyes might be able to adjust to the light. For example, why does God do this? Because think about it. When your eyes are accustomed to darkness and someone turns on the light all at once, it's blinding, isn't it? You remember when you fell asleep? Before your spouse, your spouse came in the room and turned on the light, (laughs) and the light was shining, and you start yelling, turn off the light. I used to do that a lot when I was first married, but I learned now not to do that. (laughs) When your eyes are accustomed to darkness and the light turns on, it's blinding. So what God did, he did not restore all the light of truth all at once because people in the dark ages would turn from it. 
And so what he did is he did it, he did it gradually. He rose up different men and women to restore different parts of the truth and thus leading step by step into all truth until Revelation 14, 12 says that God's end time people will have all the truth, the perfect faith of Jesus. It says, here's the patience, the endurance of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the what? The faith what? Of Jesus. Notice God's end time people, they not only have faith in Jesus, because every church claims to have faith in Jesus, but more than just faith in Jesus, they have the faith of Jesus, the same faith Jesus had, they had. You see, the word in is a word of position. It's a word of what? But the word of is a word of possession. They are not only positioned in Christ, but they possess Christ in them. They have the same faith Jesus had. Now tell me, the faith of Jesus, is that a complete or an incomplete faith? It's a complete faith. So the Bible is saying that the God's end time people will truly be led by the Holy Spirit into all truth. They're not just going to have a part of it. They're going to have the whole thing. Why? Because they've allowed the Holy Spirit to lead them. Their loyalty is not to a man or to a church, but to the Spirit as it leads them into all truth. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? So now let me give you the history quickly before we close. How the faith of Jesus was restored from the darkness of the dark ages. God rose up different individuals. The first prominent group was the Bible-believing Waldensians. These individuals, these Christians who lived in the mountainous villages of northern Italy and southern France, they were the ones that held to the ancient faith even when a time when it was outlawed by the church. And these mountainous regions provided refuge from papal persecutions. At the approach of papal armies, these Bible-believing Christians would run to the rocks in the mountains and the caves in the mountains, and they, were, they found seclusion and refuge from their papal persecutors. And we were there a few years ago. We climbed up some of these mountains. I took this picture. Here's the opening of one of the caves that the Waldensians would hide in, and they would worship God. And friends, the, the opening of the cave was so small, you had to get on your hands and knees in order to get through. But once you were inside, it was a big opening, a flat area on the bottom, and kind of looks like a church. The walls were slanted going in. Uh, as it went up, there was light shining from the top of a flat opening here, and then an elevated part where probably the preacher pre uh, preached from. And it was in these caves that during the dark ages, God's people found refuge, and they held to the ancient faith. We went in that cave, and we sang praises to God. We sang hymns, and I was there just enjoying it. it was, I just couldn't help. I was just praising God, thinking about what it must have been like living during that age of compromise. And in those mountains, they had their own Bible college, the school of the barbs, the school of the uncles, where individuals would spend months at a time in these rock cabins, hand-copying the Bible, studying the Word of God, preparing to be missionaries, and on these exact rock tables, they would hand-copy portions of the Scripture. And they would hide portions of the Scriptures. They would sew it into their clothing. And then they would go out to the busy streets and cities of the, of the area, claiming to be merchants, but whenever they found someone that was interested in spiritual things, they would pass a portion of the Word of God to them, sharing the faith. And we went into the Waldensian Museum, and in one of the glass cabinets was, uh, I took this picture. This right here is a ring, and on the top of the ring was a little compartment, and out of this compartment was this little piece of paper. You know what that is? That's the Word of God, friends hand-copied by those Waldensians. You couldn't read it with your, with your eye. You had to have a magnifying glass. But this is the great length that they went to to preserve the ancient faith. 
And God used them, the Bible-believing Waldenses, to restore the long-forgotten truth that the Bible and the Bible only should be the sole rule of faith. Can you say amen? But the Waldensians didn't have all the truth. There's a lot that they did not understand. So God had to raise up somebody else with another truth to restore. John Huss was his name. He was from the Czech Republic. Uh, back then, it was called Bohemia. He was a Catholic priest that began to denounce the heresy and the corruptions he saw within his church. He said, my mind is chained to the Bible. Obedience to God is my model. And because of his faith in Jesus, he was martyred, burnt alive at the stake on July 6 in the year 1415. And friends, we were there. We went to the exact spot where John Huss was burnt alive. There's a big boulder there uh, commemorating that spot. And God used John Huss, this former Catholic priest, to begin a revival throughout the Slovakian region. And I, when everyone left, I climbed up on that rock and just pictured what it must have been like to give my life for the Lord Jesus. It was a very surreal experience. And God used John Huss to restore the long-forgotten truth that we need to obey God, not man. And that whenever man's laws contradict God's laws, we put God first in our lives. Can you say amen? But John Huss didn't have all the truth. There was more. So God rose up somebody else to contend earnestly for the faith. Martin Luther, who started the Lutheran movement. He was a parish priest in a little village in Germany called Wittenberg. And he would whip his body and, and perform penance, trying to pay for his own sins. But it never brought him peace until finally Luther began to read the Word of God. And in the Bible, he found the long-forgotten truth that the just shall live by faith. Not by works is a man saved, but by faith through the grace of God, not of ourselves. It's a gift. We can't earn it, friends. And this was during a time when the church was selling indulgences, selling salvation, saying if you give enough money to the church, you can sin for the rest of your life and still be saved. And Luther protested the indulgences that were sold by Tetzel. And he said, no, the just shall live by faith. And God used Luther to restore the long-forgotten truth that we're saved by grace and grace alone. But friends, there was a lot that Luther didn't understand. He got that one right, but there was more God wanted to reveal. So God rose up another reformer by the name of John Calvin from Geneva. That was the city of refuge during the Dark Ages. He had a school there, and he would teach and preach and, and train missionaries in that time period there in Switzerland. And God used him to restore the truth of Christian growth and that we need to grow and mature as Christians. And out of his teachings, the Presbyterian church was born. But they didn't have it all, so God rose up somebody else to restore another part of the truth, the Anabaptists, under individuals like William Sattler and John Smith, amongst others. And, and these individuals, they found the truth that baptism is by immersion, not by sprinkling infants, and they began to teach it and preach it. Thus, the Baptist movement was born, and God used them to restore that long-forgotten truth. But they didn't have all the truth. There was more. But do you see, friends, what God was doing? He was giving each different movement a little piece in the large jigsaw puzzle of truth. Not giving all truth to just one person because God doesn't turn on all the light at once. It's blinding. He's restoring truth gradually, the path of the just, like a shining light, shining more and more until the perfect day. But then after that, the torch of truth was passed to two brothers, John and Charles Wesley in England. They gave a message of holiness to arouse the world-loving churches of the day. And their message of holiness brought uh, uh, from that message was born the Methodist movement and the charismatic movement after that. And God used them to restore the message of holiness. Because the Bible says we ought to be holy as God is holy. 
You see, God was restoring old forgotten truths. And before Jesus comes the second time, all truth will be fully restored to the people of God who allow the Spirit to lead them into all truth. And so about this time is a good time to answer the question, why so many denominations? Well, friends, here's the bottom line. Do you want to know the answer? Here's the bottom line. Why there's so many different denominations is because most people don't really want all truth. God raises up someone with with a specific truth to restore, but not the full light of truth. And people stop where their teacher has stopped. People become comfortable in complacency. And they're not allowing the Spirit to lead them further. So what happened was this, friends. Let me explain it. God would raise up someone with a specific truth to restore. Not everything, just one specific point. They would teach it and preach it. People would accept it and believe it. And they would follow a movement or a church denomination would be born. But the members would only go as far as the leader went. And so if Martin Luther didn't teach it, we're not going to believe it because we're Lutherans. And they would stop right there. But friends, the Spirit moved on and would raise up somebody else with another truth to restore. People would hear it, believe it, a church movement would be born, but the people would only go as far as the leader went. And so if John Calvin didn't teach it, we're not going to believe it because we're Presbyterians, and they would stop right there, stuck in a rut, in spiritual complacency. And so the Spirit had to bypass and move on to raise up somebody else with another truth to restore. People would believe it and accept it. A church movement and denomination would be born, but the people, again, would only go as far as the leader went. And so if William Sattler and John Smith didn't teach it, we're not going to believe it because we're Baptists. We're born it, and we're going to die a Baptist. What shallow thinking, friends. The Spirit had to move on, raise up somebody else with another truth, and and people accepted a, a movement would be born. But if but the people would only go as far as the leaders went. And so if the Wesleyan brothers didn't teach it, we're not going to accept it because we're Presbyterian, and they stop right there. Friends, here's the point. Our loyalty should never belong to a man, a teacher, a church, an institution, but only the Holy Spirit. Can you say amen? We should never get stuck in a spiritual rut, and we can only be loyal to a movement if that movement is open to allow the Holy Spirit to lead them into a greater understanding of the truth of God's Word. But what happened in the Dark Ages? They would stop. And so the cycle would repeat over and over and over again. And that's why there was an explosion of so many different denominations in the world today. Our loyalty must be to Christ and to His Word. Can you say Amen. <clears throat> So we find that God did use these movements, but they stopped short of God's ideal. So the Spirit moved on. And what happened after that? What other truths were yet to be restored? In the the 1800s, God rose up another reformer by the name of William Miller. What was his name? He was a Baptist preacher who began to study the Word of God, especially the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. And he realized that Jesus is coming again. No one was talking about the second coming during that time period. And so he began to teach it and preach it. At that same time, another man by the name of Manuel Lacunza in South America, Johann Bengo in Germany, Edward Irving in Scotland. And out of these these individuals' teachings, an Adventist movement was born. But friends, Adventist wasn't a denomination at first. It was simply a people from many different churches who believed that Jesus was coming again. And friends, let me ask you, how many of you believe that Jesus is coming again? Well, friends, that makes you an Adventist no matter what church you go to because an Adventist is simply one who believes that Jesus is coming again. It's the second advent of Christ. And so out of William Miller's teachings, 
an Adventist movement was born as the, second, the truth of the second coming was restored to the world. Now, many people ask me, well, who are you? What church do you belong to? What movement are you a part of? Who do you represent? Well, let me just tell you very plainly tonight who I'm a part of. Friends, let me, I'm happy to tell you that tonight I'm a Waldensian. Because like the Waldensians, I believe that the Bible and the Bible only should be the soul of authority. Do you believe that? Well, that makes you a Waldensian. But friends, I'm more than a Waldensian. I'm happy to tell you tonight that I'm also a Hussite. Because like John Huss, I believe that I ought to obey God rather than man. Do you believe that? Well, that makes you a Hussite. But friends, I'm more than a Hussite. I'm happy to tell you tonight that I'm also a Lutheran. I'm a Lutheran. I belong to the Lutheran movement because like Martin Luther, I believe, oh man, I believe that the only way I'm going to be saved is by the grace of God. Do you believe that? Well, that makes you a Lutheran, but friends, I'm more than a Lutheran. I'm also, I'm also a Presbyterian because like the Presbyterians, I believe that as Christians, we ought to continue to grow in grace, as the Bible says. Amen? But I'm more than just a Presbyterian. I'm also a Baptist. I belong to the Baptist movement. Why? Because like those Anabaptists, I believe that baptism by immersion is what the Bible teaches. Don't you believe that? But friends, I'm more than a Baptist. If you've stopped right there, you've stopped, you've fallen short. I'm not only a, a, a Lutheran and a Presbyterian and a Baptist, I'm also a Methodist. Because like the Wesleyans, I believe that we ought to live holy lives because the Bible says, be holy even as I am holy, says the Lord. If you believe that, you say amen. Well, that makes you a Methodist. Well, I'm more than a Methodist. I'm also a Pentecostal because I believe like the Pentecostals that I must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Can you say Amen. But friends, if you stop there, you've fallen short. I'm more than a Waldensian and a Hussite and a Lutheran and a Presbyterian and a Baptist and a Methodist and a Pentecostal. I'm also an Adventist because I believe that Jesus is coming again. Don't you believe that? The point is this. Never get stuck in a spiritual rut. Allow the Spirit of God to lead you into all truth. And you can only be a part of a movement that is willing and open for the Spirit to lead them into a deeper understanding of truth. After this, what other truths were yet to be restored? The truth of the seventh-day Sabbath, of course. Whereas most of the Christian world were worshiping on the first day of the week, the sun, the, 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 the worship, where the pagans worshiped the sun. The truth of the seventh-day Sabbath was restored. And so Andreas Fischer in Slovakia, John James in England, Oswald Glade in Central Europe, and Joseph Bates in the United States of America. They studied and and they understood. They found the long-forgotten truth of the seven-day Sabbath, and thus that truth was restored. Before the second coming, all truth will be restored. So God in these last days is raising up His final movement that would restore not just the law and the Sabbath, but also the truth of the sanctuary and the investigative judgment and the truth about what happens at death and the biblical principles of health and all of these wonderful truths that we've been learning night after night. You see, the God's end-time movement will have every truth from every different movement that came before. They would have the accumulated knowledge of every generation that came before. And this end-time movement is a group of people that are wanting it all, not just some of it, but the whole thing and what Jesus is doing. He's gathering those sheep from all the different folds, all the different churches, all the different denominations, and he's wanting to bring them together, not just in spirit, but spirit and truth. And notice how this final movement is described. Revelation 14, 12, it says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that do what? They keep the commandments of God, not just nine of them like most churches. They keep all 10, friends. They keep the commandments of God and the what? The faith of Jesus. They not only have faith, they not only have works, 
but they have a faith that works because they love Jesus. And this is the final generation, God's final movement. And how many of you want to know which movement that is? Do you want to know? Friends, do you want to know? Some of you look like you don't want to know. If you want to know, let me hear you say amen. amen. Oh, friends, if you really want to know, you're going to have to come tomorrow night. <laughs> because I'm not going to give you my opinion. You don't want my opinion anyway. Amen? We're going to go straight to the Bible, and we're going to study a prophecy that gives to us the fingerprints of God's final movement of prophecy in the last day. And so make sure you're here tomorrow night, 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock sharp. Now, friends, why is God bringing his people together? To prepare people for his coming. To proclaim a restored truth to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. A message that's going to be so powerful and so glorious that it's going to bring in the coming of Jesus Christ. And I want to be ready for his coming, don't you? But I don't want to be ready by myself. I want God to use me to help others be ready as well. Don't you see, friends, we have the accumulated knowledge of every generation before us. We're living in the most exciting period of this world's history. We're walking in the footsteps of spiritual giants that came before us, and God is calling us to take it even further. Many of the patriarchs and prophets and apostles and pioneers and Protestants of the past, they saw our day in vision, and they wanted to live right here because we're living in the climax, friends. I like to say it like this. Those who came before us, they were playing in the seasonal games, but we are in the Super Bowl. We're in the two-minute warning. We're at the one-yard line, and it's important that we make the right play. Can you say amen? amen? God is calling us to run it in and not let the devil intercept us, to take it all the way. And friends, God is not calling us to sacrifice and compromise truth for the sake of peace and unity and harmony. He's calling us to blow the trumpet of truth that people might arouse from the slumber of spiritual deception. And that's what God is calling all of us to do. Friends, it's interesting. We close with this. For every single truth that God has, Satan has a counterfeit on every single issue. I want you to notice as we review before we close. On the issue of origins, that is where we came from. The truth is that God is our creator. We came from him. But many churches are teaching the counterfeit teaching of evolution. Many churches are believing in evolution, friends. How could they when the Bible teaches clearly that God is our creator? Not only that, on the issue of authority, God's Word is the authority. But many churches say, oh, we don't have to really take the Bible so literally. You know, times have changed, and therefore we can go by what we feel is good for our day and age. That's the counterfeit. On the issue of salvation, the truth is that we're saved by grace and grace alone. But the human works is the counterfeit teaching, where people are saying, oh, as long as you're a good person, as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, as long as you're morally upright, as long as you come to church and give a nice offering, as long as you're a nice person, you're going to be saved. But no, friends, we're saved only by the righteousness of Christ, not our own. On the issue of obedience, the truth is that we ought to obey God's law of the Ten Commandments. He wrote it with his own finger. But that is being replaced by traditions of men. On the issue of intercession, the truth is that Christ is our high priest, our intercessor. But the counterfeit is a human priest. Confessing your sins to a man. And in Protestantism, we see this form of idolatry when people say, oh, let me see what my pastor says first, and I'm going to go by what he thinks. That's putting him in the place of God, friends. On the issue of worship, 
Christ has set apart the seven-day Sabbath. The counterfeit is Sunday worship, friends. For every truth, there's a counterfeit. On the issue of Israel, the truth is that spiritual Israel is the Israel of God, but the counterfeit teaching in the Christian world today is that they're looking at a literal nation in the Middle East to fulfill Bible prophecy. That's the counterfeit teaching, friends. The Left Behind series and modern evangelical theology is built upon that. It's called futurism. It actually came from a Jesuit priest by the name of Francisco Rivera. You remember the purpose of the Jesuits? To infiltrate Protestantism, to crush it and establish popery, the whole evangelical theology of the Left Behind series actually was invented by, the, by a Jesuit priest at the Council of Trent, it, um, Francisco Rivera. Amazing, friends. And it's doing a good job causing the Christian world to look earthward at the Middle East instead of heavenward where the true New Jerusalem and King Jesus is to come. On the issue of the second coming, the Bible is clear it's a visible event. Many churches believe in the secret rapture counterfeit, again invented by Francisco Rivera. On the issue of death, the truth is that at the resurrection we receive immortality. Many churches believe in the immortal soul, that when you die, you go straight to heaven or hell or purgatory. But the truth is that we go to the grave and we sleep until the resurrection. On the issue of baptism, the truth is that baptism by immersion, as the Bible teaches, the counterfeit is baptism by sprinkling and pouring. On the issue of health, the truth is that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We're to honor God by caring for our body, avoiding that which is not good according to the Bible. But many churches are teaching, oh, the health principles, they're done away with. You can eat whatever you want to eat. It doesn't matter. And friends, it's interesting. Do you see? Do you see? Majority of the Christian world, they believe what list? They believe this list. They believe the counterfeit, which is a mixture of truth and error together. But friends, how many of you are thankful for the truth? Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Are you thankful for it? How many of you in these last days want to stand on the side of truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help us, God. Amen. If you want to stand for truth, I invite you to stand to your feet right now as we close in prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, thank you so much. For the beauty of truth we thank you lord for bringing us out of the darkness and for enlightening us we thank you lord that you truly have used every church every movement lord to restore bits and pieces of your message and we thank you lord that we can be blessed and be benefited by those who have came before us but father you're calling us to take it even further you're calling us not to get stuck in a rut, but to move forward, to let the Spirit of God lead us. And Lord, we pray that we would be counted amongst the true worshipers that worship you in spirit and in truth. I pray, Lord, that the truth would be settled and internalized in our lives and that it would bear fruit in the way that we live. We want to be ready for your coming. Make us ready, dear God. And we thank you for allowing us to live in the most exciting period of this world's history. Please, Lord, may your faithfulness be ours. Clothe us with your righteousness. Bless us as we leave tonight. Bring us back tomorrow morning as we worship you on the Sabbath in spirit and in truth. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.